And I have to figure this out. So, so if I could have some figuring, figuring out music. I have all these chairs up here. I miss you. I miss you. I have to figure this out. I miss you. Sort of I enjoy that I didn't even I enjoy that I didn't even notice the microphone. All these chairs are too Poetry Night rings through. Awesome. Let's put our hands together for Michael Daly, everyone. Can I hold this? How's that? Can I be heard now? Okay. I thought I'd uh, start off by just kind of introducing myself with a couple of stories. I, um, I grew up in Massachusetts. Grew up in um, a place called Dorchester, Massachusetts, which is right next to South Boston or Southie, which is where the famous Whitey Bulger um, ruled and, and, and killed like 19, 20 people. Um, I could tell a few stories about that, but that came after after my time. My mother was a cocktail waitress and waited on him and said he was a gentleman. Um, but what I wanted to tell you is a story about when I was a little kid living on Annabelle Street in Dorchester, which which is uh, kind of a rundown community uh, and, and part of and part of Boston um, I lived uh, right along the this street and my two best friends Jimmy and Johnny were twins they lived right down the street we played together all the time and um, I probably didn't see them after I was about 10 or 11 um, I just ran into Johnny just a little while ago you know, he's an old guy like me, was a cop for 40 years, I think, and retired. And um, his brother, his, no, no, in, in Massachusetts. Yeah, everybody I know back there didn't leave. They stayed right there. Uh, his brother, his twin brother is named James Wright. And James Wright was one of my, is another James Wright, is my favorite poet. In fact, uh, my wife and I used one of his poems in our, our wedding invitation years ago. So every now and then I'll get an email and it'll say, James Wright. No, yeah, he's not writing me from the dead. But anyway, so Jimmy and Johnny, when we were little kids, they lived down the street. We played all the time. And um, right below, they lived in a, a four, I guess it would be called a fourplex nowadays. We just called them flats. They lived upstairs. There were two upstairs places and two downstairs places. And right below their upstairs place was this guy named, um, I think his name was Billy. And he used to walk across Annabelle Street to Sammy's store to buy his cigarettes and cash his check. And he'd walk across in his slippers and his bathrobe with his cigarette held up and trying to be careful that the ash didn't fall every once a week or so, you know, and get his whatever he ate, you know, white bread and marshmallows or whatever, and, and, and came home. And we knew that he lived in that house, with his, in that apartment with his sister. His sister, nobody ever really saw it, much of his sister. And... Um, he would go across, as I said, and cash his and her checks. After a while, uh, Jimmy and Johnny's father, Al, 
who is a whole other story. Al said, um, you know, uh, I haven't really seen Billy going across the street much, have you? And they said, no, we haven't seen him. So uh, one night they kind of crept down into the uh, into the apartment, knocked on the door, no answer. They go in, and sure enough, there's there's Billy uh, laid out in the in the bed, and a big stack of cash on the kitchen table, and in the living room in the rocking chair is his dead sister, who's been dead for quite a long, stinky time, you know. And so he's been going across the street cashing the checks and not telling anybody about her death, and um, and eventually he died. And so, you know, somebody, of course, came, and whoever was, was you know, the guy who did that, cleaned out all the all the death stuff. And the landlady, who was, lived right across from them, and, and I don't know how she didn't know that there were dead people right next to her, but the landlady was this nice lady from Russia. And she said, wouldn't you boys like to paint that apartment for us? Oh, yeah, we'd love that. We were 10. Oh, yeah, we'd love that. Yeah, how much will we get paid? Oh, you get paid lots of money, lots of money. So, you know, we painted the apartment, We and we had a great time. We painted that apartment. We had all painting clothes. We threw paint at each other. We did all that stuff. And at the end, we said, where's our money? Well, I have something better than money for you. <laughs> Ballet lessons. <laughs> Three strapping American children, boys, were given ballet lessons in downtown Boston, which at that time any kid, any parent would be happy to send their kid into downtown Boston, give them a nickel to take the subway and go into downtown Boston every building. We did it two times. I learned how to, you know, do when it, when, never mind. I learned how to do some of that stuff. So the other story is um, uh, when I was younger, I, um, I tended to misbehave a lot. Um, in fact, I, when I entered first grade, I, I was I, I was a I was a living hell to my my teacher, uh, who I think was a first year teacher. Her name was Mrs. Cayley, and 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 another uh, childhood friend of mine uh, also got in touch with me a little while ago. These people I hadn't seen in like fifty years, maybe sixty years, and this is you know the. The, the fascinating thing about Facebook and the interwebs is that people can find you, you know, and they look you up and you get to know them and you realize this is the same kid I knew years ago and he hasn't changed and I really don't want to talk to him at all. And anyway, he tells me that Mrs. Cayley, our teacher, our first grade teacher is still alive and I, and I, and he said maybe next time you come back you could have dinner with us. And I thought, I remember her very well and I would run her over with my truck if I actually saw her. When I was this little kid and I ran around her room and ran around her room and she tied and she, she put me in the back seat and, and, oh, and I should explain. In our, back then, um, our seats were cast iron bolted onto hardwood floors, right? And we had ink wells, ink wells with ink pens, sharp points. Which, of course, I would stick into other little kids, you know, and throw, throw paint on them and wipe paint all over myself. And then I'd run around the room and Mrs. Cayley would be chasing me all over the place and I'd have a big smile on my face because I wanted to get the attention of Linda Woloski, who sat up here in the first seat in the first row. And she was so clean, you know, and smart and, and wonderful. And she never even looked at me, you know. Anyway, 
Mrs. Cayley finally caught me, grabbed me, and, and took me back to my seat. And that day, my mother happened to send me out in my suspenders, so Mrs. Cayley tied me to my chair with my, with my bright suspenders. And, um, and that was embarrassing, you know. I can still, in my imagination, I can see all my classmates turning around to look at me, you know. <laughs> what a stupid idiot you are. And, you know, I can see their faces. And as they were smiling at me, the fire alarm went off. And, of course, they were all very well behaved, you know, and they had to line up and, and go out in, in, a, in an orderly fashion, and each and every one of them is looking at the idiot who's strapped to the chair. And they left me there. They left me there. So this is the poem about that. <laughs> it's called, uh, oh, shoot. Maybe that was it. <laughs> oh, here it is. I'm sorry. So I'd say I, I use the title from um, W.B. Yeats, Among School Children. In a photograph by Alice Austin, Suspender Salesman, Wall Street, 1896, two emotions crest over the subject's face. Distrust of fashion's caprice and confidence in men's need to hold up their pants. Behind him squeals from the harbor carom off bricks housing America's accounting industry, where at each desk a pair of suspenders wriggles over the muscles of scribes. In 1953, Though styles given way to stiletto belts, my mother cinches me in suspenders, pushes me to the street, and off to Mrs. Cayley, where I jolt over desktops, my thumbs stained, shirt finger-painted, glass inkwell oozing on my last seat, last row, iron desk dripping gibberish. What else could any young woman have done? For her, infinitesimal fingertips gripped pen nibs to scrawl our names on damp paper. If I've known you a week, I've told you three times. With her story, I lifted hundreds of students out of sorrow. My classmates squeal as I soar about her room. Mrs. Cayley lunges for my blonde eggshell skull, presses my brittle shoulders, and lashes me arm and leg to the cold seat with my dapper red suspenders. First grade faces turn to me still in my corner, faces I loved. Into this resounding silence, everyone upright, bright and tall, into our dim capacity for irony. A fire bell bleats off old brick walls. After a lifetime, I understand her need to calm, to reassure us babies, and yet I knew her eyes on me my best, fr my best friends squirming out the classroom door to safety, giggling, unable to look back at me. Her eyes, the clinical, silent, last look from my first cherished muse. I knew she would leave me to burn.
Thank you. Um, so we're talking about elections all the time, so I, I brought in a, brought a political poem, State of the Union. Wires inside the target muscled there by welders whose faces wear the strain of so many bombs fraught with our anatomy, spit out by the Constitution, as if we, however we designate our split personalities, crow from garbage bins and paste together our salutary offerings from the high wire of love. We walk with brooms through these beaten streets and wipe away courage from the eyes of children, and we know the deck of cards we used loaded with misinformation and unforeseen chance will not give us the means to wind our watch, let alone take the salt and pepper pit bull down the sidewalk for our evenings constitutional. In all weather we permit ourselves to exercise this right so ecstatically we can't repeal it, and we vote along as if it matters, calling out blasphemies of opinion and little diamonds of insight, mattering, if only to our own mothers, but mattering that we say it, that we think it, that we want it, that we were here. So, thank you. I'll save these other ones. Um, so this little book, um, it just, well, I, I'll tell you another story. In, um, now your poem was 1963. So that's my, I, in 1976, um, I, uh, I founded a press called Empty Bowl in Port Townsend. And, um, there's, uh, the first edition of our, of our publication was Letterpress. And if you ever come across it, it's called Del Mokma. Uh, the first one, and it's a very nice thing. It's uh, on, um, it's probably worth a couple hundred dollars if you ever find one online or something. It's hand printed, hand sewn, and uh, a lot of good work. I did it with a, a a fellow named Bob Blair, who soon after we did it just kind of vanished. He decided he didn't want it. He said he said I think poetry is too easy. See you later. And he was gone. And I said, oh, okay. Yes, I'm left with it. So the, we did a few uh, a few other books. We lasted for about ten years as a press, and then the press went dormant. Um, nobody uh, uh, wanted, you know, just kind of ran out of energy. A few years ago, I think it actually was ten years ago, um, another poet named Michael Connor uh, gave it new life and published a few more books. And recently, I I came up with a manuscript that I thought fit the sort of ethic that we were striving towards in back in 1976. That is to write about the land, about this place, about the Pacific Northwest. And uh, w in, in m many of our, of our publications um, dealt with issues that are now fairly common to everybody and back then were not whatsoever. Um, we, we, we were uh, just kind of writing about the places we cared for, uh, especially on the Olympic Peninsula. So I, I sort of Passed this book along to uh, the manuscript of this book along to the editors of Empty Bowl and um, and their um, affiliates, Pleasure Boat Studio in New York City, and uh, suggested that we publish it, and they did. And it's um, it's a kind of a book that uh, I hope you all have a look at it. You know, I I I bring them along and I try to sell them at poetry readings, but you know, 
I have a pretty good income. I'm not really worried about money. And I just want lots of people to have it because it's kind of a, it's a fun book. And yeah, I'm not rich, so I can't give it away. If I could, I would because I, I just think it's a, it's a lot of fun. So I titled it Of a Feather because, well, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, I thought about this recently. It was like an accident. You know, um, I was working on another manuscript for several years and polishing and working and refining these poems until I finally got it done. And I thought, those really matter to me. They're really important poems. And all the while, I was doing these other little things in my notebook. And most of them were sort of observational, often about birds. And I started to look at them after I got that other manuscript together. And I realized, this isn't so bad. This is actually a... It's a good manuscript, and I and I just kind of threw them all together, and there there they are. I have a, a book of poems, not about birds, but because there were so many birds, I thought the concept, birds of a feather, fits these poems that sort of all are about relationships, connectedness, and many observations about about um, what's just outside my window. So I'll read a few of them. Uh, if you do uh, f- find that you're interested in it. There are sort of serial, serial poems in the sense that um, they're long poems that are sort of strapped together, and they seem to fit. I put them together because they seem to fit, but I don't think they necessarily have to be read in a specific order. In other words, you could just open anywhere and read one or two. So I'll read a few from this, this title poem, Of a Feather. White rollers on Burroughs Bay, wind in the hemlocks, coyote scat on the lawn. I stopped the dog just before she rolled her neck in it to swap scents. How am I not the luckiest man? I think I'll stop holding this thing. Okay, am I going to have a... um, Number two. The deer enter our yard unafraid, appalled. My father's car ticked after I dream his journey across America where a family whispers but the nurses call on us who are white chipped paint on his walls Dr. Lynch removed the splinter from my eye the deer in the driveway his headlight an insult like the eagle near the schoolhouse two valiant crows rousted out of cedar waves of herons necks and cattails shift solemn in a breeze. At my father's deathbed, the man in a white cloak climbed a ladder. The little apples clump, soft-voiced deer return to them in evening light. At sunset, the core of gold in my fist. Three. Moon has spilled from iced curves, thermostat busted, house chilled. In warm sleep, you spoon my scrawny shank. I know your perfect fire. So long ago, your heat consumed me, illumined years, their nights still clanking. From the triangular skylight and across our hips, overlapped beneath the roiling quilt, drops a folded napkin of moon. Haven't you seen the frog's silhouette? How beside the puddle 
He looks like a hairless old man crouched to escape my hand, stretched out with best intentions. I'm a blonde child frog-hunting, while you, my adult at the wheel, wouldn't squash a frog or creep your tire forward till I've rescued it. Though you'll have to wait, tired and cold, just beyond the dome of our house, all the while I claw my way back up the gully. Or I could start from here, in your headlights, chasing the tree frog away from the cliff edge, my stagger something like a hop, while my white hair flops in the rain. The afternoon, with paired ruby-throated hummingbirds, two robins, one sails in, one away, a tag team, a stream of worms yanked alive from uncut buttercups into three gape-mouthed hatchlings, the gold Persian chattering at the windowsill. Now we're all worn out. So a few of these are um, go off into into stories, but there were some things like you know, like looking out the window. Very often, I'm, I'm just sort of sitting and looking out the window, and I noticed all of that. But th- this is something that caught my attention one day, just looking out the window. The bee caught in rhododendron tightens as it twirls the strands of a spider's web until its soft form goes limp and it quits kicking. Then a brother bee zings under branches, snips the snare, and both tear away from purple blossoms. Sometimes you're lucky, you know. You see things, and just that one moment when something's happening, you just happen to be looking. When I first uh, uh, finished my first year as a high school teacher, and I should close your ears now. So when I I hate I absolutely totally hated my first years. I hate I actually I hated teaching for the first five years, ten maybe. But it was it was pretty hard. Um, until you came along, Aaron, of course. So, it, but no, it, it was it was just you know it was like one of the it was just abnormal. I wasn't I didn't understand what I what I was doing there. So in, at the end of the first year, I just told my wife, I don't really think I can do this. I think this is not. She said it'll be okay. Let's go out to the beach, and we'll have a vacation, and then you come back and get to work. Okay, so we were out there, you know, and everything is fine. Everything is relaxed. It's just wonderful. Our son was just born, and we're out on Cannon Beach. It's beautiful days, and I'm looking out the window, and I see this happen. So I call this poem "Happiness." I knew that the swallow had finished her nest, not when she let go the fluff of a seagull and dropped ten feet to catch it, but when she did it again. One of those things, you're looking out the window and bang. I've known two other people who've ever seen that. In fact, uh, Phil McCracken, Phil McCracken, uh, the sculptor on Guimas Island, has a sculpture of this. The bird comes down, catches the the uh, seagull fluff, drops it again, and comes down. And his is shaped just like that, S-shape. So it's one of the, you know, some of these poems are sort of like that, but some of them are, 
or more um, other kinds of observations like this one. You bring it back. The way your hands rise up and clench, tease yourself all over again, a smoke billowing off your fist, long hair blowing as you stagger McLean Road's frost, traffic a herd aware an instant only of you, angry, redhead, drunk. Or, or observations like this. On the, on the Keystone Ferry, you know, they don't call it the Keystone Ferry anymore. They changed the name. And I, I'd be damned if I'll go ahead and change my poem. But on the Keystone Ferry, a straw broom and dustpan left near my seat. I pick them up and get to work. So the same time I observed that, I watch this. Slightly drunk on the ferry, he overhears Polish. They tell him where they're from. He advises places to tour. Don't tell anyone you're from France. Whispering. They have banded against xenophobes. But we're not from France. Their voices thin waves against the hull. Don't tell Americans. Know why? What's it like in Paris? Did you sample our wine? Can you stomach the food here? We're not from France. That's right. Tell them that. Je suis Québécois. He smiles at them, lifts his graffitied duffel bag to a shoulder, all but doffs his cap, walks off, stops, one finger up, stage whisper, Vive la France! <laughs> one strawberry falls over the lip of the bowl, flips once, then again to the edge of the counter, where the soft roll stops on its triangular nub. A last kernel failing to gain purchase wobbles, forgotten, till three of her fingers whisk it. Her wrist revolves it without thought. She scoops it, a ripe strawberry, to her lips. So, you know, being from Dorchester, I had to throw a couple of Dorchester poems in here. So this is um, just a memory that happens. Every now and then I'll be, I'll be here in Washington and then I'm in Massachusetts. I'll be in Massachusetts and I'll wake up and say, where the hell am I? You know, it happens all the time because I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not bipolar. I must be bicoastal. Or maybe I'm both. I don't know. So this is about my dog. Willa likes to chew her tennis ball until the hide drops off. So both halves in my hand put me back on Annabelle Street, Dorchester, half ball with a broomstick. This is the way we play baseball. Half ball with a broomstick. Home the broken pit repaved to the lumpy middle of the street. First was a DeSoto, a chrome bumper. Second was the fire station hose. Third were the splinters from the telephone pole ripped by Hurricane Carol, mostly pimple balls, someone with a blade. Probably the twins' brother Bobby had to slice in two. So you wrapped your index and your fuck-you fingers round, always curved across home plate, and it might have got to outfield, but you had to really whack it for home runs onto Mary Anderson's steps. And I get through six quick innings with Billy Boney, 
the Schadhauser and Jimmy and Johnny before she needs to fetch her half a ball across the lawn again. So it's kind of a long serial poem. And then there are uh, these things called high booms. Are you familiar with high booms? Uh, a prose piece that is sort of directed toward or ends in a haiku. It's a Japanese form. So I have about uh, six of those. I'll just, I'll just read um, two kind of short ones. This one's called The, the Loss of Beauty. So I think that you, you'll be able to tell uh, when I, I reach the, the haiku part. The Loss of Beauty. The way a face haunts us with its purity about the lips, within the eyes glow its frank pleasure in being. We can't exhaust ourselves with looking. All day, every face gives everything it has to offer in the briefest encounters, but we need to see this one face perform. More than stillness, the eye needs its laughter, its calm trust, even savagery, if we can withstand a sudden loss in one face out of millions. We cannot survive. Hearts roam continents, panting over the wooden road. And this is called Platanus Rasimosa, uh, which is the sycamore. When the tree in its bones begins to green, bud to early leaf, an aura enlivens and dormancy gets involved with breeze, the rain, and light. Suddenly birds not seen in these parts for some time take to it. A squirrel begins to hide. Yet beside the gym, intricacy of branching twists a budding sycamore. The bark peeling and pale is the face of John Ruskin, and his motley beard. Its branches draw figures against the lightening sky. It's hard not to feel consumed. We walk past these artists, themselves, their own creation, collaborators with sun and rain, soil and fertilizer, preoccupied with our own branching of thought, the pace of our walk, serenity or a lack thereof, playing at our lips. I think of my student's face texting a friend as she worked her way upstairs. Such peace emerges when all else is let go. Doubts and fog and protestation, judgment, grudges and accumulated slights, my unworthiness, as if my presence mattered, as if I'm imbued with secret knowledge. Cleansed of grief, under waking sycamore, Mad clouds bloom. And then the book itself goes back to another um, another uh, serial poem, which is, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll just read one, the last one in the group, called Body of a Finch. Gold, or yellow really, like something store-boughten, as they say upriver, colored by no pretty little hand in the Philippines with a brush and wistful smile across its breast feathers, curved talons larger than you thought they'd be. The whole bird, in fact, large, not the tiny flash you once felt so lucky to catch a glimpse of, but hefty, 
a plump one with its few flies, slow and reverent, who attend the sublime sleeper. That's a kindness to say, golden eyes, wide open, an omen, some would believe, whether of ill luck or a new day, here on the rocks in crisp sun below your window. This is uh, another serial poem, uh, is Saint Desire. I'll read, and they're very short ones, kind of short-lined ones. So I'll read this one. Saint Desire starts with a quote from Ezra Pound, And wild desire fall like black lightning, as the salamanders, keeping time to sod and grist, deaf to whistles of red wing and knock of the woodpecker, at the drill hole snag and to breath seed snap under foot paw or the talon on wind curt logic knocking at the door with brother termite two finding a way into gray glow leads down dawn crow carries a rose to the ground. First motors and the old ways darken in the palm. The moon, a small foot, steps into snow. Three. Alarmed at a hair in my oatmeal, not mine by its luster, I spare myself disgust such intimacy causes as a princess so pure and washed comes to mind when I blind to fearless microorganisms wolf my porridge so this is probably one of the oldest ones years ago I was a tree planter on the Olympic Peninsula and, and uh, all over Washington um, and uh, and so this is this is from that time. Planting silver fir above Silver Creek, the ground has broken out in snow in stone. Boulders lie crooked and cracked in the basin at the creek. Their formation spells the word we must never speak. Glacier water, ice white falls. And in incessant sighs runs the slipping ledges past crackling rent rocks, soft fire moss, red and orange. The waters is the only sound unless our tools sing metal to the ground. Then work stops. The snow gossips for a minute with our clothes. This high... Money should be pebbles in the boot, but it's not. We count the hours till we drive down 4,000 feet of cloud to a wave battering under our beds. How I long to dream again, but we have work to do. We dig again in something that has made us. 
we curse it. A buzzard's shadow hums in brief sun, and we go on. We do this in the tracks of deer. I'll just read two more. Um, so, blood moon, and I missed the lunar eclipse. This feeling I've known only from a poem about to take place. Undisturbed by my usual fury, a feeling I can locate, though I can't describe. A taste, metaphorically arisen in my throat. Deeper, I've made a meal out of poetry. An old girlfriend claimed she knew me so well she could see in my eyes when I was about to write a poem. But she was mistaken. They don't hide in the open. For three nights, this familiar presence, known to me as Paraclete under Orion's belt, as genius, inhabited black space behind seven sisters. Yet here I stand in the dark with my wife, whom I love, and we kick an orange ball for a silly dog. The poem in my quiver shot to stars with our rituals towards sleep. What brought me to draw up, out of drowsy chemistry, a taste for golden poetry? What vanity put a scribble to this page? Doubtless, I'm the ape chained to a desk, coaxed to artistry. Come to darkening, come to darken our murmuring planet guided by an incompletion in the stars. So this last poem, um, this probably is about why I came to Anacorda, so I, I, I should tell you that. Um, we used to live on the other side of the Skagit Valley in a, a town called um, Conway, Lake McMurray, and we lived there for many years. Um, and uh, neither my wife nor I were really very settled there or happy there. It was the kind of place where, you know, we never even knew the neighbors for 18 years. We didn't, I mean, we knew who they were, but we didn't really talk to them. Oops. And then, um, so we always thought, oh, we'll move over to Anacortes because it's a really nice place and it's just more expensive. And something became available and my wife got all excited about it and she said, come on, we got to take a look at this house. And I looked at it and it was a geodesic dome. I go, I'm not living in a geodesic dome. It's where hippies live. I'm not going to do that. I used to be a hippie. I'm not one anymore. I'm not going to. What I actually said was, I am not going to die in a dome. She said, well, you don't have to die in the place. So anyway, we went and we liked it, finally. We got inside and liked it. It was good. So this is about moving. On the surface of a stream into which a stone has been cast, which is the line from Kubla Khan by Coleridge, in the 6,000-some-odd days and nights, we've moved and breathed and had our being in this dark house. How many sunsets have we shifted our chairs and strained to watch in the eastern windows? How many frogs have come and gone? How many snakes writhed beneath the, rotting, beneath the, the trunk of rotting alder? We are moving to a new place. But how many currents bloomed and fell? How many cattails over the swamp? 
we have to get down on our knees and kiss the dirt. Only then can we saunter off to Kubla's pleasure dome. Well, thank you all very much. Michael Daly, everyone. Michael Daly.